So the Bible reading is on page 100, no, 1221. That's much easier, isn't it? (laughs) It was 1,221, but anyway. It is 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Helpful to um, keep that open in front of us uh, as we plunge into uh, the passage that uh, Helen has read for us. Uh, We're exploring the topic of unity uh, this morning, and I'd like to suggest that our sense of unity in any group actually comes out of our sense of identity, of how we understand who we actually are, and our identities actually come out of the things that we hold dear, the things to which we are loyal. And our loyalties both show us where we belong, but also who the enemy, who the other is. Now, we're going to do a bit of a quiz to see if you can actually get get on board with this. Okay, for those of you who are power supporters, who is the enemy? The crows. The crows are the enemy, okay? It's obvious, isn't it? Perhaps you're a Ford person, a Ford man, a Ford woman. Who is the enemy? Holden is the enemy. You get it. Okay. Maybe you've always voted for Labour so much that if you're a guy, you've only ever got red ties. Who is the enemy? Malcolm Turnbull and the Blue Tie Brigade. They are the enemy. We're getting, we're ramping up in seriousness here. Okay. I'm going to see if someone starts frothing at the mouth. Okay. You're a Man City supporter. Who is the enemy? Everyone. Everyone. (laughs) United is the enemy. You get the idea. The loyalties that we hold show where we belong, but also they define us against others. 
And I've given you a couple of stupid examples, but in our world this week, we've seen some vivid examples. We've seen race, where Palestinian and Jew have gone at each other across the borders in Gaza and people have died. We've seen religion, where churches have been bombed in Indonesia and people have been killed. Now, the world will tell us that religion is one of the big problems. And the answer is this, this word tolerance. But the funny thing is, is that when you go into the whole tolerance movement, there are lines, aren't they? This was a protest in New York. I am no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. That sounds remarkably intolerant for someone who's preaching tolerance. The only sin in a world of tolerance is intolerance. But what we need to do this morning is actually say, is there another way? Because it seems wherever we go, even if we proclaim tolerance as our world, as our society proclaims, it divides, it makes enemies, it makes others. Is there actually a way that we can actually live with others who are different? Is biblical Christianity different? I want to give you three points as we dive into 1 Peter, as I suggest uh, that Scripture shows us how we can do this. Uh, It's all about whom you trust. It's all about who you are. And it's all about whom you serve. You got it? Okay, you'll see I've given you a detailed outline there as well. Lots of blank space. You can draw pictures. You could make notes too. First point, whom you trust trust we're starting in at verse four now as Helen read for us you possibly noticed that we're starting we see that we're talking about building projects and uh, we've got two builders in view here we've got God who is building and we have humanity now the question is what are they building and the answer is each of them are building a kingdom And Peter takes us with this idea uh, to verse 4. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, as you come to him, the living stone. He He comes into the building materials. Who's the living stone? Well, if you've been around churches, if you've read your Bible a little bit, you'll know the living stone is Jesus. And the reason why it's a living stone, the reason why he is living is because Peter is drawing our attention to the fact that he has risen from the dead. He is a living stone that he then tells us down in verse 6 that he is a precious cornerstone. Now, for those of you who are old enough, um, I start having Leon Patillo go through my head. Is anyone... Anyone into Leon? No, lots of blank looks. You guys, you were never hip in the 80s in the Christian music scene. Yeah? Sing it. No, I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to do that for you. But here we have uh, this living stone is identified through this reference to Isaiah 28. uh, Verse 18, see the Lord says, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion, the mountain that Jerusalem is built on. The mountain where the temple was. He lays a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. A cornerstone. 
chosen and precious. A cornerstone set the shape of the building. It was the most important stone in the building. It set the direction for the walls. It gave the fundamental stability to the building. If you had the wrong cornerstone, your building simply did not work. And here we have Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, but a stone that divides. You've got verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. This stone is precious. Jesus is precious. He is honoured. He is revered. But Peter goes on, he says, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This stone, this cornerstone, this living stone, this Jesus, dead and resurrected, he divides. And Peter here is saying in the project of building that both God and humanity in rebellion against God is doing, the rebels have looked at the most important stone and dismissed him. Worthless, rubbish. But this has drastic consequences. It's not a neutral decision. Now, you may recall uh, back in Acts, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple one day to pray. And there's a guy sitting on the temple steps just outside the doors who is lame. Do you remember this story? If you've been in kids' church, maybe you get it. There's a song that goes with this. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. All this. I remember singing this. Um, and Peter heals the man who has been lame for years. And they get arrested and dragged before the religious authorities where Peter gives this defence. He says, know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, the living stone, that this man stands before you healed. And then he goes to the same reference. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This stone, this decision about this stone, it divides humanity. One see it as precious, as honoured, as revered. The other reject it, but so stumble and fall. That's Peter's language, using the image of tripping over the stone, but the language of judgment. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. This is what scriptures testify. This stone, this one in whom we trust, he he divides. The one, on one hand, chosen and precious. And that word of assurance, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And one of the great things about the Greek language is they have some grammatical ways of like underlining things and bolding. And what Peter is 
saying here. Uh, the one who trusts in him will never, ever, ever. It's bolded, it's underlined, it's stressed that we know that this will never happen. Back in the first century, Christians faced opposition. A guy by the name of Eliot, J.H. Eliot, wrote this. He said they faced a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit and shame believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. The church was being told they were the problem, not the solution. You know what's wrong with this culture? It's, it's you guys. And they were being shamed. They were being demeaned. They were being discredited. Sound familiar? Some things never change. But here Peter is saying, the one who trusts, the one who builds on this cornerstone will never be put to shame. And our identity flows from this allegiance. Our significance, our status comes from the fact that we are on that cornerstone. Let me give you an illustration. Um, unfortunately, um, Karen and I couldn't make the wedding last uh, yesterday, uh, but we were invited and uh, we made the previous one. Here's a photo of us uh, attending the royal wedding. We're standing there on the left. And, and when Elizabeth rang me up and said, Cameron, I would like Karen and you to be my special guests. Uh, I will send the carriage for you. Uh, and it came and got us and it brought us along and she ushered us in. And she took us up to the front of Westminster uh, when uh, her grandson was married. Uh, and we sat in the seats of honour. And then when it came time for the family photos, as you can see, we are there. We are there. Obviously, it didn't happen. But you can imagine, we walk in with Her Majesty. No one would quibble. No one would question. Our status, our identity, our significance comes by association. By association with her. We are like the moon to Christ's son. Our glory, our brilliance is reflected from him. Our significance. If you didn't have the sun, you wouldn't see the moon. It's a chunk of rock. But because the sun is there shining upon it, it glows magnificently. Its significance comes from its relationship with the sun. Our significance comes from our relationship with the Son. Brings us on to our second point. Who we are. He is the living stone. What are we? Verse 5. You also, Peter says, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The word here could mean uh, like a temple, like a building. It could also mean like a dynasty. You know, the, the house of David. It could mean both and perhaps it does. Because Peter could have deliberately taken that ambiguity away by using a different word. But what he's saying is you're being built together to be, verse 5 again, a spiritual priesthood. 
a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are both the house and the priesthood. He expands it. Look down at verse 9. He tells us this. He says, you are a chosen people. So we are a temple, a holy temple. We are a holy priesthood. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, all because of our relationship with the living stone, all reflected, all by our association. As Christ was chosen, so we are chosen. We are that royal priesthood, that holy nation, God's special possession. This is a a word that was used. Basically, the king in the ancient world owned everything. And everything was part of the kingdom. But the special possession was the bit that he reserved for his own use. He owned you. He owned everything that you owned. But this was the bit that was set apart just for him. And here we have Peter saying, this is us. And he's pulling back into the Old Testament. He's picking up an image that's there in Exodus chapter 19. When God has rescued Egypt, uh, Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. And he says these words, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nation, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The language that God told Moses to speak to Israel with is the language that Peter, by the Spirit, picks up and says, this is us. He brings the church, he brings you and I, he brings these rejected Christians of the first century and the 21st century and every other century into the big picture of what God is doing in the world to bring himself glory and to bring redemption. Here he's saying is that Old Testament people, Israel, is now there, Jew and Gentile together built upon Christ. Like Israel, we were, we are recipients of grace. It's a great passage if you're looking, if you're taking notes, look up Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, where God, to debunk Israel's potential arrogance, hey, we're the chosen people, uh, he reminds them, God didn't set his affection on you because you were the most numerous. In fact, you were the least of anyone who was least worthy to be picked. They were it. And that is what Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 says. And that what is what Peter says to us. In case we're starting to get our big boots on. He says, once you were nothing, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When we think about our status, this magnificent image we have 
royal priesthood, chosen nation, God's special possession by his grace alone. My mother used to say uh, the phrase, she used to, you know, but by the grace of God go I. You remember that? That's exactly what Peter's saying. We have no claim to this. We have no right to this. It is purely because of our association with Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone. But if you, if I stopped here, uh, you'd kind of go, well, Cameron, you, you talked about identity and division and what you've told us is how different the church is and how we've been separated and how the cornerstone divides between those who believe and those who won't. How do we live in the world? How do we, with this identity, live in the world? Now, there are a couple of normal ways, four normal ways uh, that people do this. When we define our identity, we define it against others. So you think about it on a simple level. Um, Some of you, you think you are tall. I stand next to Stephen and Lauren. I think I am short. Okay, I don't normally think of myself as short, but I define myself against them and I go, oh, I'm short. Um, You know, we define ourselves as older and we define ourselves in relationship. We define ourselves by contrast. But how can we, when those contrasts are deep and the contrasts of religion are very deep and so often in our world brings violence and exclusion Is that inevitable? Because sociologists have looked and they said there's four ways people normally deal with difference. You hunt it down and you kill it. That's number one. And we see that again and again in our world. Number two, you assimilate. We will only not spit you out if you allow us to devour you. You will come and become part of us. You will take on our value and the difference will disappear. Number three, we will dominate and repress you. We will allow you to exist within our society, but you will have a lesser status. You will not have the rights that we have. Or number four, we'll just back off. We'll just ignore you. We'll just pretend you don't even exist. Christians have been probably guilty of all of those. At the moment, I think we're most tempted by number four. We just back off into our little world and we look after our own and we pretend that they don't exist. The world has different attitudes to us. I think I see number two and number three happening in our society at the moment, the assimilate and the dominate. But is there another way? Is this the only option for us? Which brings us to point number three. It's whom we serve. And the cornerstone, the one to whom we give our allegiance, the one who is precious to us, who is honoured by us, the one through whom we are chosen. This one tells us that it is not possible for us just to walk away. Not possible to lock the doors and pretend that the world is not there. 
How do we live? Verse 11. He tells us to live literally, it says in your NIVs, as foreigners. The word literally means as resident aliens. Some of you know that. You've moved from other countries and you now live in Adelaide. You know what it's like to live as a resident alien. He's saying every Christian is a resident alien. We live, as it says here, among the pagans, those who don't believe. Literally, the word is among the Gentiles. He's saying that the church is the new Israel and we live amongst the Gentiles. We are those who believe, living amongst those who don't believe as resident aliens. But we're not just resident aliens, we're priests. And priests were set aside from within their culture what to serve God and to serve the culture. Verse 5 tells us we're there to offer spiritual sacrifices. Verse 9 says we're to declare the praises of God, the one who called us out of darkness into his magnificent light. Yes, that's singing in church, but yes, it's evangelism. It's going and speaking to others of what God has done. When you're captivated by something, imagine, imagine you're a port supporter. I know that's really hard. I'm actually wearing my port colours this morning. Um, and you were at the showdown last week. Is anyone there? Yeah? Are you a port supporter? Okay, you were excited, weren't you? You were absolutely pumped. Okay, and you want to go out and you want to tell everyone how good the game was. And six goals! The guy kicked six goals! You want to... Okay, you see a moment of somewhat glory at that point. We see the death and resurrection of Jesus. How can that not motivate us to go and declare the praises, to tell as many people as we can about how great our God is? So it's spiritual sacrifices, it's declaring praises, it's even bigger. Verse 12, live such good lives. Live such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we lock ourselves behind walls, shut ourselves off, they will see nothing, they will hear nothing. And God's purposes will not be advanced. He wants us to live lives shaped by his character. I want to spend just a few minutes exploring that. Think about the work. Most of us are involved in some kind of work, whether it's paid, whether it's voluntary. How do we work in such a way that people see God's glory through us? Well, maybe you work with honesty and integrity. Not saying that others won't. But you work in order to bring blessing to others, not to get the bonus at the end. The motive is to bless, not to gain. Maybe you've got people accounted accountable to you you've got authority over them how do you negotiate that as a boss as a christian boss as a priest serving god offering spiritual sacrifices maybe as a boss you don't use your authority to get your way all the time you don't use your authority to just achieve your ends to advance your cause but maybe use your authority to bless others. I heard of a boss 
who took the fall for one of his subordinates, who had done the wrong thing, but the boss chose to accept responsibility for the action of his team member rather than hanging her out to to dry. She wasn't a Christian, he was. She was flabbergasted that her boss would take the fall that would spend his capital with his boss to protect her, to bless her. And she came into his office one day and said, why would you do such a thing? And he said, I serve a God who seeks to bless others. And I make it my goal as a boss to bless others. I serve a God who was falsely accused so that those who actually had sinned might be forgiven. I make it my aim, he said, to absorb more pain than I inflict. Maybe for those who are bosses, that's worth holding on to. Competition in the workplace. Is it about getting ahead? Do you drop the, the story to put that person down so that others might raise you up? Do you ever go and admit fault? Do you ever apologise to those you have wronged? I believe as we live lives that are good lives that bring God glory, we will be doing these things. People will see the difference. And Peter here writes, he says, though they accuse you of doing wrong. And they will. They will. I want to dig up. This is a guy called Tacitus. I'm sure he's next to your bedtime reading on the pack. He, he wrote uh, about Nero. You remember Emperor Nero? The guy was half insane, supposedly burnt down half of Rome and thought it would be convenient to blame someone else for that. Uh, and so he blamed the Christians. Uh, He says, uh, Tacitus writes, to get rid of that report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class, this is us, this is Christians, hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition. Hear how Tacitus is writing about Christianity. A mischievous superstition. Thus checked for a moment. Again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their centre and become popular. This guy doesn't have a very big opinion of Christians, does he? Accordingly, an arrest was made, first of all, of those who pleaded guilty, And then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much for the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Tacitus obviously saw Christians as the problem. Christians as moral and social deviants that were worthy. It didn't matter that they didn't do it. We just don't like them very much. Peter here says, live such good lives that even though, like Tacitus, they regard you poorly, they speak ill of you. At the end, 
They may see your good deeds, he says, and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's our focus. And they will see that we have served God. So where does the strength come from to do this, to live like this? We need to remember the one whom we serve. Jesus, the chosen, precious, honoured cornerstone, was rejected by men and scorned. He was scorned so that we might never be. He was turned away so that in his name, the Father would never turn us away. And he has given us an identity that is not dependent upon our achievements. It is one that is received by grace, not earned by us. And so I don't need to prove anything. I don't need to show how good I am. I don't need to win against the world. I don't need to define myself in hostility, in enmity. Because I have an identity that can never be taken. And if you are in Christ, if you are trusting in the chief cornerstone, that identity is yours. It humbles us because it shows us that we can achieve nothing. But you know what that humility does? It means that there is no room for pride. That we can't look at the world and go, we're so much better than they are. We all are sinners in need of grace. It allows us to come alongside, not to condemn, but to console. But it gives us confidence. It gives us assurance. Because it doesn't matter that Tacitus wrote that. It doesn't matter that the letters to the editor accuse us of all sorts of things. Ultimately, what matters is what the Father wins. We don't need to be validated by the world's approval. Peter tells us we won't get it. We won't get it. But at the end, when Christ comes, they will see that we have served the one true God. They will see that we have lived lives for his glory. And that allows us, that allows us to endure, to endure opposition, to not answer evil with evil, but evil with blessing. And to live such good lives among the pagans that while they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to know your grace. The wonderful blessings and privilege we have of being your people, your priesthood, a community built together to offer spiritual sacrifices. And Father, we pray that we would do that, the lives transformed by the Spirit taking the victory of Christ and working it deep into our hearts. Father, help us to know that truth deeply, that we, like Christ, are chosen, are precious to you and honoured
not because of our own worth, but because of his. And Father, as we rest in that identity, as we trust in your grace and mercy, Father, give us all that we need to serve this world and to bring you glory in Christ's name. Amen.